Thank you, Damon. It, um, it, it warms my heart when um, we come, and it's so often so that we come and we sing songs that uh, reflect um, the passage that we're studying and, and, and really reflect the essence. Um, and I think even the mood and the tone of the passage that we're studying, I, you know, I am thankful for all the songs sung this morning, but particularly for the last one that we sung that reminded us that, you know, things are not like they're supposed to be. And that one day things will be different. But until that time, we are here. We are um, struggling. We often are forgetting. And we often don't take into consideration God and who He is. That we, we disorder our own lives. We disorder our thinking by not having a God-centered vision of all things. This morning... Um, we are going to have a, a message that I think is somewhat countercultural. I think actually very countercultural. Uh, and the statement that I want to make that I think is countercultural is that I believe that without God and without the proper vision of God, and I think what our text teaches us, what the whole Bible teaches us, is well, without a proper vision and knowledge of who God is, it's impossible to have true humility. That all the humility that we try to have, if it's not with God at the center of our thoughts and at the center of our lives, is not true humility. At the end of the day, it's self-serving somehow. It's the opposite of humility. Our culture is not a culture that um, pushes forward a true vision of humility. Humility is not a popular trait. And in this day and age, where Peter was writing, it wasn't popular either. I would suggest to you, like I suggested to the first service, just think about what you would get if in the presidential debates, you asked the two candidates which one was more humble. You'd probably get a very prideful response of who the most humble was. One of the things that I want to point out, um, one of the things that is innate to us is that when times are tough, when we're going through difficulties, there's this innate thing in us, this natural response to do one of two things. But they're both aimed at the same goal. Either fight or flight, right? Right? But they're both aimed at the same goal, which is self-protection. That the self becomes the center and the preservation of the self, no matter what. This look out for me type mentality is what is at the center of that. And, and a way to say that, we could do an experiment this morning. 
And that is we could, uh, uh, those of you who are watching online, we could send a package to your home with a rattlesnake in it or let loose a couple here in the auditorium. And the psychological uh, study that would be done is that some of you would run. Others of you, there might be one or two of you that run and grab the snake and twirl it around and beat it. (laughs) But both of those instincts, whether to fight or to retreat, are from that instinct to protect yourself. We also know this, that you all know the adage that the, the best way to survive an encounter with a grizzly bear be faster than the person that's with you. As Peter is writing this group of people, he is writing to a people who are going through tough times. And he is calling them that in the middle of these tough times that they are to be humble, that they are to serve, and that they are to be loving, and that they are to stand firm. They're going through some real issues. Verse 16 of chapter 4, I want to return to this verse just so that you understand and you see the words. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That this is what Peter has been driving towards, that they are going through a time of suffering and he's encouraging them. And if that weren't enough, that they were going through these difficult times of of suffering, look at verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And that these ideas of suffering and spiritual warfare, that both of these things are real and both of these things are pressing in on this, these churches in Asia Minor in which Peter is writing. And, and Peter is, is writing to exhort them and to, to help them. So I want you to see the flow of thought. Last week we talked about elders, and I'm just going to read quickly. But last week we had Peter exhorting the elders. He said, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed Notice, notice the call, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. That what Peter is calling these elders to is to humbly sacrifice themselves for the flock. That in the leading of the flock, they are to recognize, they are to humble themselves under the chief shepherd, Christ, and they are to realize their position, realize uh, who God is, realize who the Savior is Christ, and to shepherd His flock in such a way. And then in verse 5, we covered half of this verse. It says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And we, we, we kind of noticed that bookend that when the elders were leading in some humble submission to Christ and when the, the, the rounding out, when the younger believers, the less mature believers were, were humbly aligning themselves in submission to the church, 
that God was using that structure to protect his church. And then we get this, I think, this, this same thought, but kind of new trajectory starting in the second part of verse 5. And it says, and all of you, so now it's speaking back to the whole church, all of you clothe yourselves or, or put on, or th- this was a, a tying on of clothes, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, so notice the, the, the line of thought, therefore, because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time. And then verse 7. This isn't a new sentence in Greek. This is a continuation. This is a a participle here. And so it's humble yourself. And we could say it this way, humble yourself. And the demonstration that you are humbling yourself is that you are casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. So I ask you this morning, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think about humility? What comes to mind, uh, maybe narrowing the point, when you think about that you're going to sit and listen to a sermon on humility? I think a lot of times what comes to our mind, what would come to my mind is that um, I'm getting ready to be browbeaten into a submissive place of forced humility. And that's not what you're going to see this morning. What you're going to see from our text this morning is joy and grace and freedom. This call to humility is all over the Bible. Uh, This almost the same language that we have um, in verses five through seven. Very similar languages in the book of James. Many of you know the the passages about uh, humility that we find in Philippians and on Jesus's own lips. He talks about humility All the time. And so the goal this morning and what I want you to see is that humility is a supernatural gift of God that he calls us to walk in. It's supernatural. What you're going to see and what I believe is that true humility comes from outside of us. There's something outside of us we must recognize to truly walk in humility. It is a gift and we are to receive this gift And that we have a responsibility to walk in it. So the first thing that we'll see is that true humility is motivated from outside of us. And if you don't get anything else this morning, one of the things that I hope that you soak in is that God in His love and in His grace towards us wants us to get the order right this morning. He wants us to get the order right this morning. We will never walk in humility unless we get the order right. And that is, my life, your life, 
our life is all about God and His glory. That He is the center. And it is from Him that all blessings flow down to us. And if God is not the center of our life, then we will never experience the joys that we will talk about in a moment. Notice a couple of things. Notice in these verses where true humility comes from. Again in verse 5, it says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Humble yourself under, notice, the mighty hand of God. And in verse 7, notice, He cares for you. One of the things that I'm anxious that you understand this morning is that I think that these verses give us a wonderful collection of the attributes of God. And when we understand God for who He is, we can joyfully and freely uh, place ourselves in the right order. But if we don't look at all these characteristics, we fall short or our vision of God falls short. For example, if you leave out that last one that God cares for you, you may be tricked into a trap where you feel like that God just wants you to be humble because He opposes the proud and He has a mighty hand. And it's not the vision that God wants you to have this morning. He cares for you. So I want you to see and I want you to pay attention and I want you to understand what this text tells us about God and how it how it pushes us to this wonderful position of humility. And the first thing that we see, the first thing that we see is that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And one of the things I want to ask you is this. Do you believe that? Not in an abstract, philosophical way, but do you believe that the sovereign God of the universe who created and sustains and is real opposes the proud. If you believe that this morning, and that there is any ounce of pride in you, which there is in all of us, the response to this text should be, oh no. Notice it doesn't stop there, though. Notice it doesn't stop there. This God, the God of the universe, opposes proud. But notice He gives grace to the humble. I think with this verse, one of the things that it does is it helps us to see how disordered our thinking can be. And that God shows us the right order. Why does God oppose the proud? God opposes the proud because when we are prideful, we are the center of our own life and that is disordering the universe. It's, 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 it's doing things in a way that is, we're not created to be and it's not what is good for us. Why does God give grace to the humble? Because when we are in our rightful place, we are in a position under God, in awe of Him, and we are in a position to receive grace from Him because we're not resisting Him by our prideful thoughts 
and our prideful living. The second thing I want you to see this morning when we're talking about true humility is motivated from outside of us. We see God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The second thing I want you to see in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under, notice, the mighty hand of God. God has a mighty hand. This is the only time that this These words are used, God's mighty hand, in the New Testament, but it's used in the Old Testament uh, quite a bit. And most frequently, it's used in the Old Testament to talk about the Exodus. And in talking about the Exodus, the biblical writers, in talking about God's mighty hand, are attempting to explain God's sovereign rule over everything. His mighty hand. That God can deliver His people. His mighty hand scoops up His people and delivers them out of Egypt. Parts the sea and plucks plucks them down in safety. God's sovereign, mighty, merciful hand. Again, do you believe that God has a sovereign, mighty, merciful hand, that the all-powerful creator of the universe is mighty in His works and in His deeds. And when we realize how wonderful and mighty and majestic and sovereign God is, the only reaction as a human is humility. The last thing about motivations towards true humility coming from outside of us first was that we saw that he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He tells us that he has a mighty hand. And thirdly, thirdly, and this should blow our minds, that this God of the universe, who is sovereign, all sovereign, almighty, all powerful, cares for you. Verse 7, he cares for you. We know in salvation, right? Salvation is, is, is coming to the end of ourself, right? Salvation is the recognition that we are a sinner. Salvation is a recognition that we can't earn our way back to God. It's a realization that, that I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. And all I bring to my salvation is my need. And I come and I cry out to God for mercy. And God cares and loves about loves you so much that He gave His Son, that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That God cares. He made a way in Christ Jesus. And if you can remember back to your salvation, how magnificently, magnificent, magnificently humble and joyous you were at that time. Because you realize the God of the universe cares for you. And over and over in the Old and New Testament... God's people have to be reminded of this ultimate reality that this God cares for them. True humility is bred in the environment where we are attempting to see God as He describes Himself. So I want to talk just a little bit about false humility. False humility, or trying to 
please God from the wrong motives. And so I, I've got three here and, uh, that, that I just thought of. And so one is, I think false humility is bred in an environment where our aim is to, to look good. And so we act humble. Some people could read these verses, particularly the first two, and say, oh, look, look, clothe yourself with humility because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I'm just going to act humble. The distinction I want to make is that God is not just calling you to act humble so that you look good. God is calling you to act humble because you've been gripped by who he is And that motivates us to order our life correctly. It actually humbles us. One pastor said that humility is the shadow of God. That wherever God is, that humility follows. He is so great. The second uh, trap of false humility that I think that we get into at times is when we see God as a dispenser. That, that, that God is like a, a, a candy machine that you go in and you put money in and you turn it and you then dispense out of. And, and the way that this trap comes about is that many times we feel like, oh, if I'm humble, I'll dispense something in and that God will give me out something. That's not who God is. That's not how this works. True humility, true humility is recognizing our position. We don't put anything in. We just recognize our position. And God gives us grace based on where we are positionally. Lastly, false humility is is what I'm calling a pharisaical um, approach to humility uh, from a a proud heart, trying to... uh, gain status among other Christians, other believers, by walking in such a way to where the outside looks a certain way, but the inside is a rotten corpse. And we all know what Christ said about that. And so the key to true humility is the right view of God. And that propels us to the true motivation. So the first thing that I want you to see is is that how humility is bred from the outside of, of ordering our life right. Seeing God for who He is breeds humility in us. Good humility. The second thing I want you to see from this text is I want you to notice the rewards when our lives are ordered rightly. When God is at the center. When His glory, when He's seen as He is, notice the rewards. In these verses we see grace, exaltation, and what I'm going to call freedom. When we are dependent upon God, when we trust Him, when our goal is to glorify God, we get these gifts. The first thing that we see in that first verse again, in verse 5, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. One of the things that I think about when I think about this, this idea is I can't help but to think about David. And David was a guy who didn't get it all right, right? I mean, he made some major blunders, major mistakes. But David, over and over, he was a man after God's own heart. 
David saw God for who he was. David desired in his heart to glorify God. So even when he made mistakes, he was positioning himself rightly. And over and over, out of love, God gave David grace time and time again. Again, as I said earlier, the humble are in the receiving position. We recognize that we're needy, we're dependent, and he always comes through. The second thing that I want you to see, and we've seen this all over this book, in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the second reward, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And you can stay where you are, but if I were to turn back, I am going to turn back in verse 7, in chapter 1, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant chapter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And then last week in in chapter five, verse one, that you may be a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. And then there's verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice that in this verse, in verse six, that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And what Peter is laying out is a theme that we've seen all throughout this book. And that is this. That God, one of God's rewards towards us is that in the end time, when Christ is revealed at His second coming, we will be exalted. And that Peter knows, Peter is maturing his audience, and uh, one of the signs of maturity is to be able to trust and to hope in future reward is knowing that this world is not what it was supposed to be. Knowing that this world does not ultimately have for us um, uh, the rewards. And it's not the ultimate motivation for us. But that God is at the right time will exalt us. And we know this about maturity, right? How many of you who have had kids have told them something like this? Hey, they're wanting ice cream. And you say, if you eat your dinner, you can have ice cream. What are we asking them to do? (laughs) We're asking them to do the right thing and look for the future reward. Or something that may hit more close to home. Your husband or wife may want a new car. And the mature thing, the right thing to do is not to just rush out and buy one, but to save money, to make sure that you have what it takes to purchase that vehicle. If you... Suffer now for a little while. In the future, you will be rewarded. And Peter, I think, is helping to mature his audience by by ripping away the idols of this world and by having them look to a future reward that is far greater than anything this world has to offer. But thanks be to God, thanks be to God, that it's not just future reward, But that Peter points to something that happens now that helps encourage us, that helps us, is a reward for us as we humble ourselves. Notice in verse 7, again, this is not a new sentence. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. 
One pastor put it this way, that our anxieties are to be cast and not carried. That God, right now, right now, wants you to place your anxiety and your worries on Him and let Him take them because He cares for you. And as Peter is writing to this group of people, they were facing some real worries. Persecutions, job loss, physical harm, being slandered, serving under harsh masters, living with an unbelieving spouse who is difficult to live with, living under an ungodly government and regime. And oh yeah, like we said earlier, he reminds them that Satan is roaring around looking to devour people. What Peter is saying, and please hang with me here, Proud people try to carry their own worries. Look at Isaiah. You don't have to turn. I will read it to you. Isaiah 51 verse 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass. Notice what Isaiah is saying here. This is God. It's God that comforts you. So if God is the one who comforts you, who are you to be afraid? Psalm 43 verse 5. We're familiar, more familiar with this verse. You remember this verse? Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. That the psalmist is teaching us how to preach to ourselves and is telling us you have no reason to be downcast because God is your hope. And so you may be asking, how is anxiety or worry prideful? Because I think that when we look at pride, we tend to look at the other side of pride, which is which is prideful, which is something comes along and we say, we stick our chest out and we say where there's a will, there's a way. And by golly, I'm going to push my way through this. Uh, I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and do this myself. That's a very prideful, arrogant stance. And we know that. But the other side of that is worry and anxiety and fear And we see this all over the Bible that God works this way and He calls this um, pride because instead of trusting God, trusting in His mighty hand, trusting in His sovereignty, trusting in His mercy, trusting in His care, we take on the worries and we fear. And so what God is telling us is that for those of you who see God for who He is, it releases care, worry, and anxiety, and that we can walk in freedom as Christians. 
Now, I want to make a, a um, small caveat here that some preachers and teachers don't make, and I also want to make a connection so that you can, you can hear me clearly. Some preachers would say kind of what I just said and kind of move forward, and that would leave some of you um, beating yourself up. And beating yourself up maybe wrongly. So let me, I, I want to say something, and I want you to really hear and listen to me as I, as I try to explain this. Um, there is a such thing, there is a condition that affects us, some of us, psychologically, that produces uh, anxiety and worry. So, so there are, I do believe in a, a clinical, psychological, generalized anxiety disorder or some other things. There's, there's a lot in those categories now. In fact, um, I myself uh, could probably be diagnosed with um, a level of anxiety and so I, I, what I don't want you to hear me saying is that if you suffer from that, that that disorder makes you wrong or sinful. However, what I want to motivate you towards is that looking at treating that disorder is, is a very important thing for you to do because there's a rounding out of this that's vital for you to hear. And I'm just going to start with myself and then maybe get to a place where some of you are. Um, for me, when I, when I run or when I ride my bicycle, cardiovascular exercise for me um, keeps the feelings of anxiety at bay enough. And what that does is it enables me at that point to think clearly, more clearly about who God is and cast my cares and anxieties upon Him. I'm not casting my cares and my anxieties out on the trail that I'm running on. It doesn't work. I'm not banking on some euphoric runner's high to get me through the day. I'm still depending upon God, but God has graciously given us some things, and for some of you that may mean medication, and what that means is that as you take that medication, it gives you the ability to then take those anxieties and those cares and place them upon God. We understand what I'm saying here? So the sin, the prideful stance would be to, to never to, to do that. To just carry those things yourself. There's way more that we could do there, but I need to finish the sermon in a timely manner. The third thing that I want you to see this morning is I want you to notice that you are involved in humbling yourself. Look, Notice the language, verse 5, 6, and 7. Clothe yourself with humility. You clothe yourself with humility. Verse 6. Humble yourself. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then in verse 7. Casting. You cast your anxiety upon Him. And so the key to this that I think is that when we see God rightly, when we recognize who He is, when we consider that He loves me, that we put ourselves in position to be able to humble ourselves. And, and one of the ways to do that, I think there's a little bit of a process here, and the first is, is that any impulse, any impulse in us to not humble ourselves, that we need to recognize that and confess that sin of pride. 
And that can come from a variety of places. It can come from uh, fear. It can come from the desire for self-exaltation, the love of the praise of man, the love of this world. And so anything that we feel in us that, 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 that is prideful, is arrogant, that we need to recognize that, figure out what it is, and, and confess that to God. And then... We need to go to His Word and see God. And we need to have verses that tell us how great God is. It is good to be reminded of the greatness of God. And when we do that, when we read that, the Holy Spirit takes that Word and puts us in the right, humble place. And then we need to trust in God's promises. And it would be awfully good if you memorized these verses. Lastly, in closing, I want to ask the question of what if we got the order right? What if we got the order right? What if we saw God more clearly for who He is what would happen when we gathered together how would that impact how we sing how would that impact how we hear God's word and how would that impact like it tells us in verse 5 clothe yourself with humility toward one another. How would that impact how we interacted with one another? How we worshipped, how we built one another up? What if we became a people who believed God's Word so much that we fought against pride and the impulses of pride in our life uh, that would lead us into places that are very destructive for ourselves and for other people. How would that change the way that we viewed church? I think one of the things that it would do is that it would change our mindset from a, um, you know, nobody recognizes me or a poor me or don't you know how great I am or viewing church as a place to display what a great Christian you were. It would, it would change all of that and put you into this position of humble, glad-hearted service. How would that look in your community? How would that impact how you talked to the lost? One of the things that I'm thankful that as Damon uh, prayed in both services, he used a word that I think is very fitting and that I had here in my notes to end on. And that is the word revival. And even what the word revival means. It means to revive. And revival is a personal thing. It's not an evangelistic tent meeting. Revival, true revival. Uh, the essence of revival is that our hearts as Christians being revived. Being re-centered on who God is. And I want to ask you. Do you desire this this morning? Do you desire to see 
and meet with God on his terms as the loving, sovereign, caring father who at the proper time will exalt you and will free you now from worry and anxiety if you cast your cares upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would set our hearts ablaze with a desire to see you for who you are. God, I pray that we would be a people that receive your grace, that are exalted at the right time, and who can cast our cares upon you. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus.